0: Welcome to 21st Century Women, the podcast that celebrates fabulous women doing interesting things. Each month, Jenna Watts explores different topics with the help of women who are high achievers in their field. They chat without judgment, learn from each other, and have a good laugh along the way. And now, here's Jenna.
1: Hi guys, welcome back to 21st Century Women podcast, and if you're into James Bond, then today's episode is an amazing episode to tune into. We are so lucky to have Matina Jewel joining us, a guest who has been on my dream list or my wish list because she's an outstanding woman and she's just done some outstanding things. She's been one of the first women to uh, do a number of things within the Australian military. She's fast roped out of helicopters into ships. She's led a UN peacekeeping mission in Lebanon where she found herself thrown into the middle of a devastating war. Plus, a mum to two beautiful girls. So. Welcome, Martina, to 21st Century Women. I want to get stuck into it before I give anything else away of your just incredible and uh, feel like you're our Australian pin-up superhero, superwoman. So thank you so much for joining us. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on. Martina, you joined the Australian Army at the tender age of just 17. You had an extremely interesting and diverse 15-year military career. How did your personal values evolve over those 15 years?
0: Uh, My personal values, I guess, you know, they evolve dramatically, I think, if you take any child at that age of 17, um, and then put them in a particular career path for 15 years, they're going to evolve dramatically over that period of time. Um, Probably very quickly, joining the military is like probably no other career path that I've experienced since being out of the military, in that in a really short period of time, the military very good at taking individuals and making them part of a team. And even my parents would say um, at my first um, March Out Parade at, at Addison, so we'd only been there six weeks, that even my language had changed in that short six-week period that I went from saying anything about I or me, that all the words that I used was we, our, team, and it was all those, you know, um much bigger focus on the group rather than as an individual. And I think that's probably one of the unique traits of the military. They create such a strong culture that it's not about individuals, it's about the entire team and the organisation as a whole, um, which is obviously very apparent because on a battlefield it's, it's about winning, winning the war and winning the battle, not as how individuals stand out in an organisation. So um, I guess for me that's sort of created such strong um, leadership skills around, around team dynamics and how, how leaders, great leaders, can inspire their teams to, to, I guess, complete things, complete missions that they didn't think they were capable of achieving
1: themselves. Do you think any other career could have given you the lifetime learnings and values that you took away from your military career?
0: Yeah, look, I think you can create similar values and obviously in my roles now as a, a keynote speaker, advisor, facilitator, online programs as well. It's taking a lot of those principles and learnings that we can apply from the military and apply them into the business world. And a lot of that is successful, but I think the unique factor to military is there there is a real life and death um, situation that you 're leading in which is hard to replicate in a corporate sense where you might be managing a large sums of money and success is termed in a financial success but uh, in a military factor you 're talking about um, saving people 's lives literally in those environments so when you 're talking about decision making risk management and those types of things um, from my previous experience in the military you know you 're literally making decisions that will impact on people 's lives and so there 's a huge risk factor and responsibility factor but I think is is useful to try and transfer across to the corporate setting to get people to think about those decision-making and empower people in those processes um, if it was actually a life-and-death situation rather than just a financial outcome.
1: You became the only Australian to receive two Republic of Lebanon War medals for acts of bravery on the battlefield and wounded in combat. Are you able to share a bit about these experiences?
0: Yeah, general, I'll, I'll do my best. I guess... Um, across my 15 years as an officer in the Australian Army, I was fortunate to represent my country on five overseas missions. And the last one was a representational role with the United Nations. So I was a peacekeeper in Syria and Lebanon. I spent seven months in Syria and six months in Lebanon. And a really unique environment because it was actually being moved out of an Australian Defence Force scenario where you're actually representing the country. And so in both my teens in Syria and Lebanon, I was the only Australian serving at my patrol regions and also the only woman uh, in those teams in that entire uh, regions of the UN that I was serving in. So um, very challenging environments, particularly as you say, as a woman, I have blonde hair and blue eyes and, and serving in two Arab countries. Um, as a woman in, in uniform you know you layer a lot of cultural challenges over that sort of when organizations want me to talk about some gender diversity inclusion type issues experiences I've had I mean that scenario alone provides a lot of um, a lot of lessons that we can unpack uh, for organizations and some of the the skills that we need to equip um, our women or whatever type of situation we're trying to increase diversity whether it be age, race, religion or gender in, in cultures of organizations there's a lot of lessons there around how leaders can better support people in those environments and create cultures that do, are fully inclusive and, and diverse. But um, yeah, the, I had only got uh, two weeks left of that 13-month posting with the UN, so I was actually on my very last patrol due to return home to Australia soon after. And unfortunately, the day before I was supposed to come off the base, the Hezbollah Started a big war with Israel. And I was at patrol base Kiam at the time, which is a tiny UN post. It's no bigger than the size of a tennis court. So it's a very, very small base. Um, it's usually only manned by four or five UN peacekeepers uh, and from all different nationalities. So I was in a team of 11 peacekeepers. We came from 11 countries. And we went in a split second from monitoring a peace agreement between the countries to in the thick of, you know, full-scale warfare, where we had, at my base alone, during that war, we had over 50 misses that came from bombs fired by fighter jets, attack like helicopters, macabre tanks, artillery fire, that was all coming from Israel, and then also misses from the Hezbollah, because they were firing Katusha rockets into Israel. And I guess, you know, there were just so many times during that war where I really should have died during that war. I had... Um, 155 millimeter high explosive artillery shell land just 15 meters in front of me the only reason I'm still here is that it didn't fully detonate it had a partial ignition it caught on fire split the shell into three but didn't explode the way that it should have and there were so many of those types of um, near misses for me myself but also for my team during that war and so I ended up um, having to spend extra time at the base than what I should have. You know, I was due to return back to Australia, but um, after a two-week uh, stint at the base, my Austrian teammate Hans Peter did actually manage to make it out to Kiam, replacement at the base. But this uh, ended up being the toughest leadership challenge of my whole career, in that I was just suddenly tasked to command a convoy of UN armored vehicles, so two armored personnel carriers, and command a crew of sixteen Indian and Ghanaian infantry soldiers. And it just suddenly becomes my job to navigate for this convoy to get us from my base, from Kiam, to the UN headquarters in Tiam. And not only that drive takes you about two hours to complete, but at that stage of the war, Israel had commenced their ground invasion into southern Lebanon. There's a lot of fighting happening along the border, and the only roads that could get me to the headquarters parallel the border, so... Uh, two-hour drive took me over two days with near misses from both sides of the war, uh, having those 16 soldiers that I was responsible for as well, making lots of life and death decisions on the way. So um, I was probably only about half an hour from headquarters when I, I got information that uh, the Israeli fighter jets were coming in on bombing run and I was on one of the roads that was going to be targeted. So um, again, you know, I guess converting that to a corporate setting, it was turning into a really tough day in the office. <laughs> managing the risk um you know the responsibility and unfortunately um you know i assessed all my options only had two and i sort of had to head for the headquarters which was my my best uh option at that stage but during that transit i was thrown into the bulletproof windscreen of my armored vehicle which fractured and crushed five vertebrae a heap of internal injuries and those injuries ended my military career but you know at the time though during the war um Yeah, I was in a lot of pain, obviously, but had much bigger issues on my hands. You know, I had these soldiers and this convoy that I was responsible for, and I knew that I had to just get it going, get us into headquarters as quick as I could. And we did reach that compound about half an hour later, Um, but unfortunately, all the UN medevac failed during this particular war. And unlike an Australian Defence Force scenario, um, they didn't have dedicated air medical evacuation assets, so. I ended up spending two days on a tiled floor without pain relief, while we're still getting bombed by Israel, just watching the UN scrambling, trying to find an alternative evacuation process to get me to a hospital. And that ended up being uh, two days later by boat um, to to Cyprus, which is a 20-hour boat ride uh, with Lebanese refugees. So, um, And then it was actually a 16-day uh, process before I ended up back to Australia to actually commence treatment for those spinal injuries so it was a long kind of convoluted medivac process but um, tragically during that time too when I got to Cyprus I, I was um, made aware by the media actually by CNN news that um, my colleagues that I'd left back at patrol base key arm um, um, tragically had been had uh, the base had been struck by another 1,000-pound bomb by an Israeli fighter jet that went straight into the bunker that instantly killed all my colleagues there. So um, there was no survivors at the base. Um, yeah, these are massive weapon systems. Uh, they'll destroy five 10-storey buildings. So it being laser-guided, direct hit on that bunker, um, yeah, there was really nothing left of that entire base uh, at Qiyom. And, you know, unfortunately, I guess some of the leadership lessons that came out of that was that at no stage did any of my own leaders from the UN or my Australian commander just ever think to contact me about the deaths of my teammates. I guess from their perspective, I was now off the battlefield. I was in Cyprus injured. But that that lack of communication from my own leaders is something I talk about in my, in my sessions about. It's so vital in these moments of crisis in our lives for our leaders to step up. Uh, and talk to our people and it seems like a bit of a no-brainer but in those moments we naturally get so focused on the operational aspects and you know operations is really important but as leaders we need to make sure that we bring our people through that journey um, so that they can come out the, the other side of those incidents as functioning cohesive teams that are capable of being able to work together and move forward after those incidents so you know it really is vital as leaders that we take the time during a crisis to communicate with our people and and tap into that emotional um, aspect of being a leader.
1: I mean, you experienced more throughout this time than most people would experience in a lifetime. Do you think there's some kind of silver lining that this was meant to happen to you, that this was your purpose to then go on and speak and share and inspire people today, now?
0: Yeah, look, I think, Tana, look, it was a really... It was a tough period after I, you know, I really suffered with survival guilt. Um, all my colleagues had children. I was, I was single. I had no dependents at the time, so I really wished I could have replaced one of the guys so that there was a set of kids that wasn't having to grow up without their dad. And, you know, I got to a stage where I actually really resented the fact that I was alive. So I went through um, this horrific period of just rock bottom, where in a split second. I felt like I lost so much of my life. Everything that I'd worked for, so hard to get to where I was. I'd, I'd done a number of firsts for women in the Defence Force. I had this fantastic you know, career ahead of me, um, but all of that was gone and I was just left struggling to comprehend why I was still alive. And had I not been injured, I would have died at the base of my teammates. and so it took a long time for me to fully comprehend and accept that that was the reality of the situation. But I think um, actually becoming a mum has really helped you know that purpose that you're talking about. That um, for me, in many ways, and I was told that I wasn't going to be able to have children with my injuries. We did years of unsuccessful IVF treatment, gave up having kids, and then we've got these two little miracles that happened without IVF. Um, so yeah, it was against the odds to have, to have got these little girls uh, in my life, and I think having them, becoming a mum, just allowed me to live freer to actually say maybe this is why I'm still here was to have these gifts have these children who knows what they might go on to do and I think during that process I found my own voice and understanding the power of my own voice to have gone on to do roles like an advisor to the Australian Prime Minister I've also met with Ban Ki-moon been instrumental in, in fixing a number of the processes and procedures that led to the deaths of my teammates and I guess that's a message for all of your listeners is that you know, I'm just a kid from Byron Bay that joined the army at 17. But sometimes, you know, we think we're not capable of affecting change, particularly on big organisations like the United Nations and and governments. You know, they're very political, bureaucratic systems. But even one single voice can create a ripple that can can create a tidal wave of change in all of those different organisations. And and I guess it's that process that's allowed me to to trust in my voice and trust that I'm here and that um, that I have got a purpose um, that it does, thankfully, give so much meaning to people and inspiration in their own lives and different walks of walks of
1: life. Martina, you retired from the, from the military as a major. What would you say your leadership style was and did it evolve?
0: It's changed dramatically and I think um, I talk about dutiful leadership. It's actually a leadership style that I've created myself where it's a combination of leadership styles and it's, it's probably like some key things in there is about um, servant leadership. Uh, that was created back in the 1970s so almost like flipping the organizational chart on its head that I as a leader believe that I'm here to serve my people and to, to look after them um, and I guess that's part of that military foundation as you know you you are there to support your soldiers on the battlefield uh, as a leader and you put them first. Uh, also inclusive leadership has always been a, a part of my natural style as a leader. I like to draw on the diversity that that already sits within most organizations, but it's about giving people a voice so they can put those skills and ideas forward, regardless of where they sit in the structure of the business. And then thirdly, it's about um, being flexible as a leader. And I've found, you know, over time, you hear all these latest fads of leadership styles and what's the latest spin on it, but I think um, to be a successful leader across time is about being responsive, adaptive in organizations and in environmental conditions. And I found certainly for myself as a military commander, being on a battlefield, you need to be able to switch rapidly between those leadership styles. So um, although my preferred style is to be an inclusive leader, in a war zone, you just simply don't have time to call a team meeting, <laughs> we're having a huddle, we're going to have a brainstorm around what we should do next. You need to flip into quite an authority style. But if you've built trust and rapport with your people... And that's a really key component is that you first, as a leader, have to have that trust and it's earned. It's not something you wear as a rank or a job title. It's something that we own up and down our organisations. But if you've done that first, then your people are likely to be able to flex with you and, and be accepting that you've transitioned appropriately as the environment has called for you to change your style.
1: This is a tricky one. Well, I know people find it tricky. How did you encourage your team to trust you?
0: Yeah, look and I think it's about identifying what will earn you trust in your organisation and every job is going to be different, there'll be a different thing that actually will, will get you rungs on the board as a leader to show your people that you're um, accountable, that you're successful, that you're actually competent. I think a lot of people think they want to do all these great things but at the end of the day if they're not competent at their job, then all those other things actually will, will fall away and they'll lose trust. Uh, It's interesting as I found as a a woman in a male-dominated work environment, particularly like the Army, during my career I found it quite frustrating that my male colleagues would simply be promoted into a new job or or moved to a new battalion, they would automatically have that trust and respect simply by their rank. Um, Whereas a woman I found that I had to earn that and I had to work so hard at the start of each of my postings to earn that trust and respect and it's actually only in hindsight since leaving the Defence Force that I've seen that as, was actually quite a great benefit. It was a gift to me to, to learn that lesson, that trust and respect is something you you earn and you should have to earn it, particularly when you're asking people to put their lives in your hands. Um, and so, you know, I think as a result, having to earn that first, I had much stronger teams and, and more united teams than some of my male colleagues who, who didn't work that hard to start with.
1: You were also the first woman in the Australian Army to complete the physically demanding Navy Diver course you must have a pretty strong mindset. I mean, that's tough.
0: I had quite determined characteristics as a child and I used to set myself goals, particularly in a sporting aspiration. I played lots of sport as a kid. I was very fortunate to represent Australia in a couple of sports. Toured China when I was 16. That was a real pivotal turning point in my life. And I think that determination to set myself goals, I was never competing against others, but just my own internal competition just to see how far I could push myself and so I've got one of those minds that is that style of thinking that's just wants to just keep edging it a little bit little bit Um, I guess part of that too is having the courage to say yes to those opportunities. So not only getting yourself the skills to be in a position where you're then afforded the opportunity to do to do new new things or firsts um, in your organization um, but then also having the courage to dig deep, deep and just have a go. And I think that's about having that mindset where you can kind of remove the pressure of success and failure. Just actually see everything as a great opportunity to learn because often, you know, actually our failures give us the, the best learning opportunities. They, they provide those lessons that embed very deeply and we, we remember our failures for a really long time. So if we can kind of remove the fear around failure, just look at everything just say, yep, yeah, I'll have a go at that. I'll have a crack. I'll give it my best. And just see where it takes you, and, and that was certainly the case with the diver's course, where I just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> was offered the opportunity to become a navy diver, um, and look, it was—it was really physically tough. By far, the most challenging physical activity I did in my entire 15-year career, um, but something I'm very proud of that I, I got to have that opportunity, and then got to lead uh, dive teams and operations uh, overseas.
1: What about your mindset? How has your mindset impacted the way that you lead?
0: Yes. In fact, they, they called me the Trilogy of Hate in that I was uh, not only the only woman, but I was also the only army on a Navy course. So all the other divers were, were sailors from the Navy, but there's no rank structure on those training programs, so they quite loved being able to yell at an officer. And uh, yeah, look, it was, it was a really it was a tough, challenging course, but um, I loved every second of it.
1: Is it easier to lead women or men? Do you think there is a difference? Look, I think there is, but my
0: experience is around um, leading men, and so uh, I guess having grown up as uh, a younger sibling with an older brother, uh, hanging out with all of his mates. So most of my childhood was sort of hanging out with the boys, bit of a tomboy, doing lots of physical sporting activities, which probably led me into into the military. And so I've never had a fear around um, being. Um, with men operating in in a male dominated work environment was kind of quite a natural fit for me and so i guess most of my career i was the only woman in a team and more often than not i was the leader of that team of an all-male team and so uh, i found it's really interesting when you to change the dynamics from an all-male group and even if you just add one woman into that environment it really does change the dynamics and the makeup particularly if that woman is of a senior level the organisation, you'll see the behavioural patterns change dramatically and you could do research <laughs> all day on uh, on those types of teams and, and see what happens to you change into the makeup of a group. Uh, and, and, you know, leading women now, um, I'm really blessed now to actually first time experience, you know, female mentors and, and leaders throughout my entire career. I didn't have any female role models or mentors. I'm very appreciative for the women who went before me in the Australian Defence Force that um, probably suffered much tougher conditions than what I did. There were enough women around for it for me to come through and do a number of firsts. Thanks to those women that went before, that kind of put those cracks in the glass glass ceiling allowed my colleagues and my um, my era to basically come through it and and rewrite the way that women operated in the defence force. There is now no gender criteria across the entire defence force. So, if women are um, enough they pass all the um, entry requirements they can be special forces fighter pilots submariners you know infantry armored corps any of the arms roles we can now have women in and that's a big shift in a very short period of time to have a completely diverse organization
1: what about maintaining relationships to be a good leader can you maintain those relationships
0: it is a tricky thing um, when you talk about maintaining friendships and leadership in some of those environments, you need to manage people to have the understanding that you may have to transition very quickly into a different leadership role. And, uh, you know, in my case on, on battlefields, you need, you need to be actually looking after the entire team as a leader. And so it is, it is sometimes difficult to, to blur that line of friendship and leader, but I do think it's possible, and so long as it's done well and respectfully, um, then, you know, you can be a friend as well as a leader of organisations.
1: Now, before we get to the last few questions, I want to touch on doubt. A lot of people experience doubt. Where do you get the inspiration to trust yourself or push the doubt aside? Mm.
0: Look, I think doubt and fear, Jenna, is a really natural response for um, for everybody. We know we have those fears about ourselves. And I think for me, my biggest fear, I've gone through all this incredible military training where you um, – do lots of exercises outfield. They simulate war environments, but it is a simulation. And I think for a lot of leaders in the Defence Force, you have this doubt of will that training kick in once you get onto the battlefield, when, when rounds are literally cracking over your head, you've got people's lives for real in your hands, are you going to be able to keep it together, manage those emotions, or will you become overwhelmed and the training not kick in? And I think, you know, that's, that's a question mark in the back of well, it was for me in the back of my mind, throughout my entire career till I found myself in those situations and thankfully the training did kick in I found that as a leader sometimes you have to remove the emotions you have to kind of sit the emotion outside so that you can remain in a decision making mindset so that you can keep making those decisions to stay alive and almost like disassociate from the emotions that you're feeling at the time but, you know, in some ways, I think it's actually an advantage being a leader in those environments, because I was far more concerned about the lives of my soldiers than myself, and that my biggest fear was not being injured or killed myself, but, but if I'd made a decision that led to the death or injury of one of my soldiers, that was my, my greatest fear in those environments. But. I found in those crisis situations, we actually have no choice but to jump in and have a go. Often the worst outcome is if you become immobilized by fear and incapable of making a decision. Often any decision is better than no decision. And so if you can just keep in that mindset of just going, trying to kind of remove the pressure and just say all you can do is do your best at this point in time, um, back yourself in those environments and hopefully make the right course to, to survive another day.
1: Matina, how different is your life today?
0: Oh, look, it's completely different. Um, I'm very fortunate to, to to still do a lot of travel, travel around the world, speaking to all sorts of organisations from across the industries, um, and, I, and I really love that opportunity to actually sit myself in people's shoes from from all different walks of life and actually experience what they're experiencing in their their business and their lives. Um, but very different from, from the military scenarios that I was uh, facing Those life and death. Thankfully, there's not too many bombs anymore um, in those war zones that I was in that um, I liked a little bit calmer, uh, although I do have two small children who run my life now <laughs> who do not take orders at all. And uh, <laughs> um, But it does sometimes almost feel like even when I'm on stage sharing those experiences, showing video footage from the war zones um, it does almost feel like I'm talking about somebody else's experiences because my life is so different from where it was you know, back at that time.
1: And you have written a book called Caught in the Crossfire, a great read. But do you have another book you could recommend? Yeah, look, I've got a couple of books that I'm reading at the
0: moment. Um, I'm reading um, Any Ordinary Day by Lee Sales, which I, I highly recommend. It's, um, it's called um, Blind Sides, Resilience and What Happens After the Worst Day of Your Life. And so, I guess obviously, there's a strong connection with me having, you know, had my world turned upside down and finding that resilience to push through. It's kind of nice to read other people's uh, experiences of that.
1: And lastly, a quote that you might live by.
0: Quote: There's a couple of quotes that I live by, but probably the the one I'll share now is um, I have a saying: It's you know, it's not a war stopper. You know, we tend to all get bent out of shape with our first world problems, and sometimes it's about having that perspective to step back and say take a deep breath and uh, just put it all back into place of, you know, that we're not in a war zone. No one's going to die today. I've just got to chunk it down, break the equation down, make some decisions and, and you know, hopefully it's not as big a problem as what I'm feeling at the moment.
1: Thank you so much for your time today and everything you have done. Um, Plus sharing your story and telling the world, it is just such an inspiring story. So thank you so much. I'm super excited to, Uh, listen back to this episode, actually, and just uh, take it all in. So thank you again, and absolutely all the best.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Jenna. You've been listening to 21st Century Women Podcast with Jenna Watts. To hear more stories about fabulous women doing interesting things, you can subscribe to the 21st Century Women Podcast via iTunes or Spotify. If you'd like to leave a comment, you can post a review on iTunes or at jennawattscomau slash podcast. On the website, you can also check out the latest blog posts and notes on
1: each podcast. Until next time.